You're listening to Remote Possibilities, a podcast on the intersection of technology, society, and education, brought to you by MarketScale. Now here's your host, Kevin Hogan. Okay, hello, and welcome to the latest episode of Remote Possibilities, the podcast that explores the promise and the perils of distance learning. I'm your host, Kevin Hogan, and I'm glad you found us today. With me today is Patrick Leonard and Megan Harney, co-founders of Midas Education. Midas, uh, which stands for the Massively Integrated Data Analytics System, which I, I, I love that acronym. It sounds like radar. It's pretty solid stuff. Uh, this, this system provides all the functionality of 17 different software systems that schools traditionally buy. The company provides curricular and assessment resources, parent communication and accountability, assessment analytics, and district and student information management, all in one platform designed with individualized instruction in mind. And both Patrick and Megan, you have been uh, advisors and, and colleagues of mine for uh, for many years now, and I kind of miss you guys. It's been a while, right? I know. It's been so hard to not be able to get together in 2020, but we're hopeful that uh, coming up here we'll be able to again. Yeah, Pat, I'm thinking maybe it might have even been a TCEA back in February where I know people were discussing the pandemic. Uh, I think it was Italy was just starting to, to blow up at that point. But that was the last uh, in-person uh, trip that I that I took. Um, that was I took one more after that. I was at that TCEA and we were down in Austin and we met up you know, and talked a little bit. But then shortly thereafter, um, I was in Phoenix for an ALAS conference. And that ended March 6th. And that was the last time I've been anywhere in education that, you know, was live. Yeah. Well, yeah. And then we, we were fortunate to be able to attend a conference in uh, North Carolina in just towards the end of July, working with superintendents and a focus group. You know, how are we going to come back from this pandemic? And I thought that that was really interesting to work with folks who I did. were yeah, I, at the that's... forefront of things. Yep. Yeah, that was a Doug Roberts thing, right? It was, yep. Yeah, 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 that was good stuff. And was glad to see that it went off uh, without any problems. So, But here we are in our existential uh, angst <laughs> of going together. The, 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 the podcast series started maybe not that much after. I guess it was probably the beginning of May where I started to reach out to EdTech execs uh, to ask them how they have been responding to the pandemic. And it's been interesting to watch the... Um, kind of the progression of the the tenor of the conversation. But each one, I still have to ask everybody, uh, you know, what was that where were you when moment? Uh, many times it seems it was either Friday the 13th or Pi Day, where a lot of executives were just like, um, this is going to be different. Can you guys recall back all those months? Well, I can speak from my part, which is we were sort of the very first epicenter here in Washington State where we live. And the city where it first hit was Kirkland, Washington, where Megan lives. And okay. so we were kind of well aware of what was coming down. And then the conversations we had of, oh, my, what does this mean for us from a marketing standpoint? What events are going to be canceled? And everything was sort of up in the air. And then, you know, both Megan and I reached out to some of our friends who were superintendents once it got going and sort of, what can we do to help? And, you know, we got some great advice from our superintendents as a technology company, what can you do to help us? And one of the things they said was, don't sell us. Yeah, We're swamped. We're buried. We're just trying to survive. 
if you can help us, great, but we're not interested in any sales pitches. We're not interested in any of that. And so we, you know, Megan and I had a pretty long conversation and we decided we're going to shut down district sales for the foreseeable future and work on other things. Hmm. Yeah, yeah, that, I... that was a, a tough to decision to make, especially when, you know, we have investors, we have employees asking, well, you know, why, why aren't we actively selling? And of course, you know, when you present it in, in the right light, folks understand, but we did have an opportunity to work with some districts to innovate. That's where districts were saying, you know, we need help figuring out what we're going to do in this new paradigm. And uh, fortunately, we had we had some strong district partners and, uh, you know, I'm sure we'll get into that, but that's where some of our innovation and in micro credentials and a couple of different video mentoring applications and things have come up because we've had districts that had the capacity to experiment with us and find out what works in this new world. Yeah, definitely. Um, in my conversations with uh, districts and with, with companies, there seem to be two camps of, of, of districts. Those who could, all they could do was to try to keep it together and keep students connected, let alone forget about COVID learning slides, forget about uh, assessment, forget about all that stuff, like just have a connection to the students uh, for social emotional learning reasons, right? And then you had these more uh, innovative districts, as you mentioned, Megan, I know that I've, I've met several of them uh, over the years, who they were almost kind of rubbing their hands together saying, finally, this is the moment that we are going to be able to utilize all of these technologies and these techniques that we've been advocating to use for years, but that for one reason or the other, we haven't gotten around to it or can't afford it, right? Yep. No, that's that's exactly what we saw. Uh, and I'll let Pat speak to it a little bit more, but one, one of the first districts to really jump up into, uh, you know, trying to trying to innovate with us was Davis District in Utah. Yeah, and that, you know, that I'm actually heading there. I'll be there tomorrow morning. I'm taking a flight for the first time in a long time, but I'll be in Utah. But Davis was looking at this as an opportunity. And, you know, as I've talked with other folks before, in this new world, assessments are different. Um, a lot of districts, a lot of states have, you know, dropped the mandatory requirement for summative assessment scores and you know, year-end tests like that. A lot of districts aren't able to do their, their formative assessment testing because they just don't have the capacity to have kids on campus. Right. So the question they asked in Davis is, well, then how are we going to basically hold ourselves accountable that our students are learning something? And a couple of years ago, we started the micro-credentialing program with them for professional development. And our whole focus was, if we really want to change the way teachers teach, then we need to change the way teachers learn. And Davis was at the forefront of that. And so they were not as interested in the term badging because they wanted something with a little more meat to it, a little more currency. Yeah. So we worked with them and with under the guise, or not guys, the permission of the state of Utah. So they were the state's chosen district. Let's build out micro-credentials for teacher professional development. Let's give teachers credit for completing successfully micro-credentials and so we worked really closely with them to build out the micro-credentialing platform. And it's a creation studio to create micro-credentials. It's a catalog in order to you know, register, sign up for. It's an application process where you can do the work to earn the micro-credential. And then it has the appraisal approval process, whether or not you earn it. And we built it from A to Z. And it's now been in use in Utah for a couple of years. Well, the pandemic hit, and the next thing was, can we move to kids? Can we start doing these micro-credentials with students? 
And I, we could not have been more excited to start that project with them because that's been our focus for a long time. And you know, Kevin, you and I have talked about this over the, the decades. We've been talking about mastery-based learning for decades, but it's difficult to do that when the community expects, how did my kid do on the test? What is my kid's grade? What's my kid's percentage? What's my kid's GPA? How's my kid gonna get to college or graduate, et cetera, based on old norms? And mastery-based learning is a change of, change of pace for people. And this pandemic gives us an opportunity to say, this is what mastery-based learning means. Prove that you have something, prove that you've learned something, but most importantly, provide evidence that you get it. And with that, you said that there are other technologies that you mentioned uh, that harken back to when we would talk about the idea of uh, digital portfolios. Can you expound on that a little bit? Yeah, and I think part of what that is, and, and some are there, everybody's evolving, and it's, it's a great race to get into to see if we can move towards mastery-based learning. But a lot of the initial approaches were you know, using the term badge, and you can create a portfolio where you can collect your badges. But a lot of the badges didn't necessarily have currency to it. So did you earn credit for it? Did you earn professional development credit or school credit for earning the badge? Did it move you on the salary scale? And most importantly to us is, what is the evidence that it's actually being implemented in your classroom? So the focus of what we're doing in Davis and consequently the whole state of Utah, if you're going to earn a micro-credential, one of the requirements is that you provide evidence of implementing what you learned in your classroom. So it's taking, sure. it, it takes away from the, sitting, the sit and get professional development and it makes it more functional. We really are excited about that work. And Megan, this doesn't sound like something that's a stopgap measure because of the pandemic, right? I mean, no. is this something that you anticipate will be uh, the new norm? I, I think it will be. And this is something that we've been trying to do now for really since the start of Midas. When uh, when I started thinking about things that we wanted to do back in, in 2007, it came from teaching experiences and mastery-based learning really being that students can work at their own pace. I don't think you can reasonably expect. And when I give this example, people, I think it hits people. It's like, oh yeah, you can't have a student get a C in algebra one and they move on to algebra two and you expect them to get an A. Right. They, they, they don't have the foundational knowledge to do that. And you're asking them to do something they're not capable of. So you need to disaggregate the time from what you're asking students to learn. And so when we were working with Davis on the concept of developing student micro-credentials, it wasn't just the language change from a badge to a micro-credential. That was important so that people could make the distinction. But you're thinking about things like, how do you give students currency? Well, they need to be able to earn not only district credit, but then have a clear pathway where that district credit translates into graduation credit and potentially into community college or higher education credit. So that's we've been fortunate to be able to work with the Davis district uh, to find higher education partners that will accept these micro-credentials. And another challenge that we worked on with figuring out how these student micro-credentials would work is that you need subject area experts, obviously teachers, to be looking at whether or not the student work will qualify for credit. And in most cases, the uh, idea is to have that go to the student's teacher of record. But what if you have a student who's trying to get a micro-credential in an area that they don't have a teacher? Hey, I'm enrolled in this chemistry class, but I'm really interested in physics. I put in the work to go get a, a physics micro-credential because that's what's going to engage me. That's where I want to go and you know what I'm learning. So then they had to have 
you know, staff at the district level, how do these micro credentials get directed to the right place when a student doesn't have a teacher of record in a subject area? Right, right. Well, talk a little bit about how you see this in the in the short term versus the long term. The um, and <laughs> I mean, this is personal because I have a a son who's a junior in high school. I'm looking at this the the, the general standard assessments uh, are completely asunder, right? Whether they can mm-hmm. even go into a classroom and, and take a test. How can schools shift to this this kind of uh, paradigm of micro-credentialing now? Or, I mean, is this something that's going to take four or five years to scale? Oh, I, I think they can do it now, but I don't think it can be, you know, all or nothing. They're going to have to continue to support students in the community with, you know, some teaching approaches that they're used to and that they expect and then introduce this in parallel. So, okay, you know, you, you still are meeting with your teacher, whether that's in person synchronously or online synchronously or at a different time. And then along you can use this micro credential. And I think it's important that people realize that micro credentials aren't really the learning micro credentials are the evidence of the learning. So the learning can still happen in a variety of different modalities. And micro credentials are a place where you might aggregate resources. Okay, if you want to learn how to weld, here's a whole bunch of resources that you can go study to learn to weld or solve linear equations or write persuasively or whatever the micro credential skill is. But then the micro credential becomes the the repository, if you will, for the evidence that you know how to do something. And it houses feedback from the instructors and mentors on how to help you get better. Because frequently students aren't going to submit a micro-credential the first time. Hey, A plus, great, good, you earned it. We all need to be iterative and be able to accept feedback and get better. So what will it be then? Will there be a state standard of mastery versus... You know what we have. We're you're meeting a, a state standard of score. I mean, is it going to happen at the district level? I'm trying to figure out like who creates those rubrics. Is it the, is it the district? Is it the state? Uh, where do you uh, see that in the big picture? You know, I, I I think it's all of the above because you're just like you think. You know, people. It, it's not that far different from what people do today. It's 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 different language. It's a different you know kind of um different steps to get used to. But you can take, you know, college today. People go to an array of higher education entities and it kind of matters where you go, right? I mean, if you have an Ivy League diploma or you have a state school diploma or you have a community college diploma, employers look at that and they distinguish for better or worse, right? So if you have, um, you know, a district, a community college, a state college, a nonprofit organization, a medical um, agency, a bank, you know, certifying these different skills, it's going to be the um, reputation of the accreditor that's providing credit for these micro-credentials that's ultimately going to say what your what value your micro-credential provides. And if you look at the micro-credential as really being, you know, lifelong learning, but learning in the pursuit of getting a job and um, proving that, you know, you know something or you're getting a, a state credential to do something, then your micro-credential and the accreditors that you seek out um, is versatile. Hey, I want to go have a career in banking, then I'm going to seek out micro-credentials from U.S. Bank or Citibank or, you know, folks in the industry that matter. And if I want to seek out a credential in an academic subject, then I'm going to try to seek out 
micro-credentials that are accredited by um, higher institutes of higher education or, or K-12 education uh, providers that have a good reputation. So forgive me. For, oh, go ahead, Pat. I'm sorry. I'm going to try and expand upon that. So part of that is when you think about who actually makes the move or makes the accreditation move, it, it depends on what the state rules are and what the district rules are. Most states have an awful lot of local control. So in the example of Davis, the Davis School District will decide whether or not micro-credentials earned by students actually meet the qualifications to earn a high school credit. Okay. The university system will be decide whether or not the micro-credential earns college credit. The industry will decide whether or not that micro-credential earns certification. What we've built is the platform, the creation studio to build out the micro-credentials. And as we've said, the micro-credential needs to require that rigor built into it. There should be rubrics built in for how it's scored. There's a requirement for evidence of efficacy that if you're a teacher, where is my evidence that I use this in my classroom? And it can be video evidence. It can be all kinds of different evidence, evidence. And we built a creation studio. What we're hoping is, like you mentioned earlier, there are those districts who are kind of innovative and want to move in this direction, but maybe the public's not ready. Yeah. If we can coordinate that conversation with the business community, the chambers of commerce, the industries and trade associations, and government agencies, and the community colleges and the four-year colleges, and the K-12 state departments of ed and, and district. Now, students in schools can not only earn credit, like imagine you earn 12 micro-credentials and you get a credit for Algebra 1. Awesome. But maybe I'm a student and I want to learn how to be a health screener so that I can screen my family and friends for health issues and go work for one of the health insurance companies. We've built that micro-credential in the state of Utah with our partner, Latinos in Action. So they're working with their kids to identify health issues with their family and you know their parents or grandparents or aunts and uncles. And that's being supported by a, a giant you know health inst institution in Utah. So if we want to move the districts, part of it is the districts have to be innovative themselves and be willing to move in this direction. I also think they need to be pushed in this direction a little bit by industry. Mm-hmm. Well, if, if you'll both indulge me for being a little dramatic here, then uh, when I hear the conversations about, you know, we don't need the SAT, we don't need the ACT, we don't need state testing, which we didn't have in, in, in the spring to monitor or even to, to find the slides. Most, most of the measurements happened you know, through assessment companies and through curriculum companies who, who track that sort of stuff. Um, so we might as well just blow that stuff up and rebuild, take this time to rebuild uh, into a micro-credentialing dynamic. Is that too much? Am I, am I going no. too far? No, we, we, we think that's great. Now, whether, you know, who will move in that direction? Some some districts will move very quickly and they'll, and they'll do that. Uh, not everyone will. Well, and I think, Kevin, it's a, it's a valid point. And it's, it's a little daunting and a little scary. But if you think, you know, go back in history, and I've been in education for 35 years now, we've had these conversations about mastery-based learning for an awful long time. We haven't moved very fast. But in many cases, K-12 education has been so many things have been unfunded mandates and so many things have been dumped onto K-12 education that they get a little bit overwhelmed. And so if we go back, you know, 25, 30 years and then come back to even No Child Left Behind, 
K-12 education didn't write the assessments. Giant curriculum companies wrote the assessments. Right, right. Giant curriculum companies wrote the assessments, and not to pick on anyone, but they wanted to guarantee a certain failure rate so that they could sell supplemental resources. Right. And the K-12 education has, for the most part, abdicated all authority of what means what good teaching means, and they've abdicated it to higher ed. You want to be a teacher? Go get your degrees. Go get your certifications from an accredited university. You want to keep your teacher certification? Well, every five years, you need to earn X number of additional credits. It's just been very recently that state departments of education, like Utah, has said, you can earn college credit, you can earn USBE credit, or you can earn clock hours to move on the salary scale, and we will accredit what that means for quality education. So I, I like this in K-12 because the experts in learning should be the teachers. And the choice of learning should be a combination of the teacher consulting the kid. Where do you want to go? Where are your strengths? What kind of skills do you need? What are the resources you need? And when Megan founded Midas before I joined five and a half years ago, the goal was to surround the student with the system of support to help them get where they want to go. And whether it be the student information system or learning management system or state reporting or social emotional learning or curriculum, how do we help this child get where this child needs to go with adults guiding them along the way? And a summative test doesn't tell us that. And to, to that end, I think it's really important that, you know, a lot of districts are hesitant to take on too much. Oh, we're going to overwhelm people. Yes and no. I think if you take on a number of things in a very focused way where they're all interconnected and you drop some of the other things that have been there for compliance purposes or whatever, and I'll just give an example. Um, Midas does a lot of things that are PD focused. So really, if you, you think actual, actual professional development delivery of classes, whether synchronous or asynchronous, um, we have educator growth plans, pick your growth plan. What are you weak in? What are you strong in? You know, um, how, how are you going to get better? Video mentoring. Here's a video of myself teaching. I want to have a communication with uh, communication with my PLC or with my mentor, with my appraiser on what you're seeing in this video. And then uh, micro-credentialing. And so all of those are really four strands of PD. And with across many of our clients, we don't see them using all four in concert because it's it's like, oh, that's that's too much. I don't, I don't think it is. I think that having um, an integrated approach to something that you want to achieve can work very, very well. So you start with the growth plan. Here's where I'm weak and here's where I need to get better. Now let me find PD that will help me address those weaknesses and those areas that I'm interested in improving. To support that, I'm gonna do, get some video mentoring to help me get better in those areas and get some coaching. And then when I feel like I've achieved the skill, I'm gonna get a micro-credential, which gives me currency and helps me move on the salary scale. I think that when districts can see their way to doing that in an integrated fashion, it benefits everybody. But some other things might have to fall away. Right. Well, and then that's the million dollar question, too. As I, I mentioned uh, to Pat before we started the conversation, that I had grown so accustomed to meeting with districts who get it right, who are innovative, who are very progressive, um, that they don't need to be sold on the idea of things such as this. Um, but we're kind of faced with the stark reality when you look at the number of districts who didn't have devices or access to, to their students in their districts, or even knew how to stay in contact with them 
once uh, they were removed from school, um, there's still a long uh, road to, to go here in terms of getting a, a general uh, acceptance of these new technologies, right? Certainly, yes, there are. There are, And I mean, there are just the physical limitations of students who have devices versus those who don't. But that's where I think asynchronicity becomes even more important because a lot of students can get online for a portion of the day at school, at a library, at the local McDonald's that has Wi-Fi. And it's unfortunate that our country hasn't you know, taken a lead on making broadband access universally available. But given that that's the reality we live in, students do uh, frequently have access to, uh, to internet for a portion of the day. So where we can introduce asynchronicity either through micro-credentials or Midas works with a couple of districts on kind of a student agency goal setting um, application where students can put in goals and they can get feedback from other adults in their lives on their progress towards those goals. You don't need 24-7 internet connectivity. You just need a portion of the day and you need a system that will support connecting to that system periodically and getting feedback, you know, when you can. Yeah. And to that point, you know, it's not in, in lieu of having the equity and access issues that we need addressed in our country. In the meantime, we have to have an answer. We still need to work as a country to get access to every child in education. Of course. It, it, it's kind of ridiculous that we don't have it yet. You know, and I know, as I mentioned to you earlier, that part of the shutdown of sales, I did a lot of volunteer work for a board I'm on. Well, we raised about a you know one point two million dollars to help underprivileged kids through that board work. Well, now we're taking on a new initiative in Washington State, where I'm from, to raise ten and a half million dollars for a digital equity program, and we've got support from Boeing, Microsoft, Amazon, Starbucks, the Seattle Seahawks. They're all involved in this process. Yeah, but it shouldn't take that. We right. should have this already. This is ridiculous that we don't. But we need to keep hammering on our legislators and on our elected officials and our business leaders that look, this is something that should just be a, a given. Yeah. But in the right. meantime, F -F we have a giant chunk of kids who are not, we've seen through COVID that the underserved were hit the hardest. Yeah. So F let's figure Absolutely. out a, a temporary solution. Yeah. Yeah. I'll, I'll give a shout out to CETA stands for the State Education Technology Directors Association. That organization has really been leaders in trying to get uh, global broadband access nationwide. And I learned recently, um, surprised me, but it shouldn't have, that there are actually, you know, where, where you could treat uh, internet broadband as a, as a municipal utility, right? I mean, mm. that would make sense, have some kind of low level broadband, you know, universally available than if you want to have the public marketplace where you know, other companies can uh, promote higher speed, more bandwidth, that, that sort of thing. That, that would make a lot of sense to me. And I thought, oh, well, you know, why don't we do that? It turns out that it is actually illegal in some number of states. I don't remember the number uh, to offer municipal broadband because guess what? The, the, the telecom and companies that were offering the private options have good lobbyists. Yes. And I think right. that's incredibly unfortunate that... You, you know, you you have you have folks working at cross purposes here that uh, increase the inequity. Absolutely, absolutely. Being from Philadelphia, where uh, it was supposed to be the first uh, Wi-Fi free Wi-Fi city, it then became the headquarters for Comcast. So I don't know if, uh, and it never did become the first free Wi-Fi city. <laughs> yeah. Well, I think that, right. that also deals, you know, Kevin, with what you mentioned earlier about, you know, making this type of a change, and as a 
as a corporate entity, you know, we are a for-profit company, we've recognized that before you can sell your product, people have to buy into your vision. And so it's easy to sell a product that has already been visualized and is common in the market. You know, build a better bounce trap, sell a minimally viable product that everybody already wants and needs, and it becomes commoditized. But you just go sell the hell out of it and you can make some money. That's yeah. never been the focus of what Midas does. And so it maybe has taken us longer to really start to gain the type of traction we're getting now. But we've been selling this vision for five and a half years. And Megan's yeah. been doing it for 14 years. It takes time to get people to change the possibilities. What is possible in education? How can we do this? The pandemic has given us an opportunity to say, we don't have a choice to wait around anymore. We have to fix this right now. And so we're, you know, we're going to be overwhelmed in the next couple of years and we're happy about it because yeah. we think we can start getting people to understand that vision of what does it truly mean to have mastery based learning? What does it truly mean to give the children a voice in where they're going with guidance? What does it mean to evaluate our systems based on evidence opposed to just a simple test score? That's a fundamental shift in education in our country, but it's a necessary one. Absolutely. And, you know, I usually have to uh, ask my final question uh, to make me feel better about the current situation. But I think you both have already done that for me. I mean, this is uh, sounds like a, a pretty exciting time, both for Midas and for districts who get it or who are about to get it. <laughs> yeah. And, and, I, and it is exciting. I mean, you never waste a good disaster, right? Exactly. Exactly. But as I knew, the toughest part uh, of this episode was going to be to stop the conversation. We can go on for a while and we don't even have uh, adult beverages. So uh, next time, I hope it's in person. But uh, in the meantime, thank you so much for your time. Oh, thank you, Kevin. Thank you, Kevin. We really appreciate this. And if you need anything else from us, you know where to find us. Excellent. We're always happy to help. And thank you to the listeners and hope you will tune in next time to the uh, next episode of Remote Possibilities. Thanks very much.